Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're headed. We're going to talk about Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson is the first American missionary to the foreign field. He left America in 1812. And uh, in fe- on February the 19th, 1812. So we just celebrated the 200th anniversary of his uh, departure, if you will. So what a great story this is. Now, it's a different kind of a service. And, uh, and I know what kind of a pastor you have. I know how he preaches. So you're accustomed to getting loads of information. You're, you're, you're obviously able to process doctrine and truth. And I, I don't think I could trip you up. If you, can, if you can hang with him, you can hang with anybody. He's the best. But be patient through this because there's some things I really need to read to you. If I just try to say it, it won't be as good. And there'll be a few spots where I'm going to read some quotes to you that might seem lengthy. So when we get there, just work through it with me. Because hopefully it'll pay off when the story all comes together. And um, this man's life is worthy of our uh, remembrance. He's worthy of that. And so we put in the time uh, in this 200th anniversary year of his setting sail for Burma. It will be a worthy sacrifice. I think. It was said about Judson that he is Jesus Christ's man. That's what the heathen said about him. That's a good thing to be known for. He was referred to by Jeremiah Jeter as the father of American missions. F.W. Borum said that Judson was haunted by the vision of nations dying in the dark. He was... Truly an unusual man. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14 says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in In what? In love. Rooted and grounded in love. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. So that's an interesting thing. If we can be grounded in love, if we can know the love of Christ, then we will be filled with the fullness of God. Certainly that's a worthy goal. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for your help tonight. Lord, I'm a bit apprehensive about this message here. I I pray that it would not be Dry that it would be what um, what it should be, and Lord, we we love Mr. Judson. We are grateful for his memory, and we thank you for him, because it's you and your grace that made an Adoniram Judson, and you can make more. There could be one sitting here. There could be someone here who could experience a life-changing realization tonight if they would consider 
the depth of the love of God and what it means and what it could be worth to us. So Lord, as we look at this life, we do so to see what your grace can accomplish in the lives of mere mortals. So may you get glory first and may Mr. Judson be remembered secondly. And may this church be edified and encouraged because of it. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So the Apostle Paul expresses in this passage his great desire for the believers of Ephesus that they would know the love of Christ. Someone has said that if we take the doctrines that we profess to believe into the chambers of our heart, there will be sleepless nights and upheavals of emotion. Think of that. There's so much truth in here about which we are flippant that we read dismissively or, or, or we, the Bible word would be we despise it. It doesn't mean we hate it. It means we just aren't moved by it. We pay little attention to it. The Apostle Paul spoke as if knowing the love of Christ would fill us with the fullness of God, that it would be life-changing for us. He said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them, and rose again. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I used to read that verse, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And I read it as if it was implying that the love of Christ would protect us from tribulation, keep us from distress. Protect us from persecution. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that though we will have to face tribulation and distress and persecution and endure famine and nakedness and peril and sword, though this kind of suffering may be strategic in the plan of God for the accomplishment of His purposes, though we may endure such dark trials that we seem to be unable to, to find God in the midst of them. Though that may occur, we can be assured of this. It will never separate us from the love of God. John the, the Beloved also spoke this way. He said in John 14, 15, If you love me, or Jesus said in John 14, 15 rather, If you love me, keep my commandments. In verse 21, it says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. The love of Christ and living in that love, in the experience of that love, in the effect of that love, will lead logically to keeping his commandments. 
John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. The simple idea is this. Those who know the love of Christ, love Christ. You know, the Bible says to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I think that is very clearly presenting a contrast of the affection of the believer and the affection of the lost man. doesn't mean a believer won't struggle with his lust. We talked about that already. But I will say this, that in every believer there should be, or there will be, there must be, A love for Christ. A love for the Father. A love for God. There will always be pangs of conscience and inner conflict in the heart of those that love God and are thrust into the influence, or thrust among the influence of this ungodly world. Those two things will always create a conflict within us that would justify the authenticity of our faith. You love God? Probably you do. Or you wouldn't be here tonight. I think you do. Seems that you do. Your behavior seems to indicate that you do. But more often than not, that love is tested not by how happy we are in the comfort of a meeting house of this nature, but in the crucible of affliction. It's there that our love is put to the test. You may remember Abraham and Isaac. The first time the word worship is found in the Scripture. It is found in the chapter where God requires Abraham to offer the son that he loved. When he did that, God said, Now I know that thou fearest God. Adoniram Judson was a man who was changed and moved and molded by the love of Christ. His sister-in-law, Mary Hasseltine, said about Adoniram Judson, His first introduction to our family was in the summer of 1810 at the General Association of Massachusetts, which met at Bradford. But we had no acquaintance with him until the, the succeeding autumn. He was then in all the ardor of his first love. It may be literally said, he was a man of one idea, and that was love to Jesus and a desire to manifest it in all its varied forms. Francis Whalen said the preceding letters show that from the time of his self-consecration to the missionary service, he became in the highest sense a man Of one idea. We're pretty scattered. I speak for myself. I can be pretty scattered in life. There's a lot of things that I care about. And probably too many things that I'm interested in. This man. Had one great passion. That was the love of Christ. And that love drove him. To the dark places. To the hard places. But it did not leave him there alone. This unrelenting love fueled Judson's labor resulting in the completion of the Burmese Bible. 
the English Burmese Dictionary, over 7,000 happy converts in 63 congregations. In Malden, Massachusetts, there stands a Baptist meeting house today and it exhibits a marble tablet that bears the following inscription. In memoriam, Reverend Adoniram Judson, born August the 9th, 1788, died April the 12th, 1850. Malden, his birthplace, the ocean, his sepulcher, converted Burmans and the Burman Bible, his monument, his record on high. When you talk about a life of a person like this, and, and you write an article like we will have in the, this uh, issue of the journal that's coming, you have to remind yourself that you're not writing another biography. It's just an article. And there's so many things that you leave out that are significant. Judson was a preacher's son. And he was lost. And he was affected by the deism that was so popular in his day. And had become quite a skeptic. Would take his father to task about his apparently foolish ideas and his traditions and religious hang-ups and had sort of developed a, a rebellious spirit toward the faith that he had been taught. He was traveling and uh, stayed in a country inn. He stopped, rather, in the country inn to get a room and they told him there was only one room available, but he wouldn't want that because in the room next to it there was a sick man who was dying. And he said, ah, that won't bother me. I'll be happy to stay there. Put him in that room and through the night he listened to the, the cries and the moans and the suffering of the person next to him who was within the throes of death. So in leaving the next morning he stopped at the desk to see how the man fared and he did indeed die in the middle of the night. So Adoniram Justin asked, who was the man? And he was shocked to find out that the man that died in the next room was his closest friend and companion in college. He was one of the young men that encouraged him to mock his father's faith and, and to become a skeptic. And, and to that event was such a shock to him that he began to think about his soul and his future. And long story short, he goes home and he eventually gets saved. And, and so Adoniram Judson is born again. And in 1808, he entered Andover Seminary. In December of that year, he completely dedicates himself to God. There was a great fire of revival for missions that was burning at Andover and Williams College. And Judson and others were presented to the Congregationalist for missionary service in the East. So he's not a Baptist. He's a Congregationalist at this point. He eventually meets a young lady named Anne Hasseltine and they fell in love and committed themselves to a life of service for God in the Far East. So Judson writes a letter to Anne's father. Here's what it says. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. To see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure. And to her subjection. To the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean. To the fatal influence of the southern climate of India. 
to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of Him who left His heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means? From eternal woe and despair. Her father's response was that Anne could make her own decision. And she did. And she committed herself irrevocably to a life of service and suffering. And unspeakable sacrifice. They set sail for Rangoon. Top heavy with bright hopes and grand ideas. With the promises of God undergirding their faith and the prospect of the conversion of the heathen fresh upon their minds, they with others set sail from Salem, Massachusetts, bound for India. Luther Rice, who you may have heard of, he's, a, he's well known among the Southern Baptists. They use his name in, so, in association with uh, missions and raising money for missions and they all traveled um, to Burma on two different ships. Luther Rice sailed aboard the Harmony. And Judson's and the Newell's set sail aboard the caravan. They reached Calcutta. But they, they endured quite a conflict on the way over. Judson was going to have to translate the Word of God into the Burmese language. He was going to have to preach doctrine and establish churches, and so he had questions in his mind about the issue of baptism. He explained it this way in a lengthy letter to the third church in Plymouth. He said this, But how, thought I, am I to treat the unconverted children of domestics and domestics of the converts? Are they to be considered members of the church of Christ by virtue of the head of the family or not? If they are, ought I not to treat them as such? After the, the point here is, if you remember in the Old Testament, you remember when Abraham and the issue of circumcision is, is, is taught and put into place in the, as a part of the Jewish faith, uh, those who were under the household of Abraham and others under the authority of, of a man would be required to be circumcised. And they would follow that and that would make them part of that covenant because they were under the authority of Abraham. And so the idea with those who believe in, in pedo-baptism, which means baby baptism, those who believe in that doctrine and encourage that doctrine, they believe that it is a replacement for, in this day, it's a replacement for circumcision. Now we understand the two have nothing to do with one another. They're not even similar. But that's what, what Judson is wrestling with. Judson says, After they are baptized, can I consistently set them aside as aliens from the commonwealth of Israel until they are remitted? If they are not considered members of the church, can I consistently administer to them the initiating ordinance of the church? 
So these questions may not appear to be life-altering to us at first glance. They're on their way to a foreign mission field. A lot of people would say, what difference does it make what mode of baptism? Why does that matter? Go preach the gospel. Pick one. I'm not being, uh, True, that's the way a lot of people would look at it. And if they decided to be scriptural in their baptism, or let's say it this way, should they be compelled to change their position on baptism, they would lose all their financial support, all their denominational connections, and maybe even the loving support of their family. So on the way over on the boat to Calcutta, they begin to study. And uh, let me read you from Anne's letter, uh, lest I be repetitive. Anne said this in a letter to um, some friends and family. Mr. Judson resolved to examine it candidly and prayerfully. Let the result be what it would. No one in the mission family knew the state of his mind as they never conversed with any of us on the subject. I was fearful he would become a Baptist. (laughs) And frequently suggested the unhappy consequences if he should. He always answered that his duty compelled him to examine the subject and he hoped he should have a disposition to embrace the truth, though he paid dear for it. I always took the pedo-baptist side in reasoning with him, although I was as doubtful of the truth of their system as he. I think it's important to point out here that Ann Judson was supportive. I've read some who try to make it appear that she was cantankerous and contrary with her husband on this matter. And that's not at all what's happening here. She's with her husband being thorough as two who united together to do something for the Lord. My wife's opinion is very important to me. Very important. And, uh, and if my wife is ever contrary, and I mean no, in no humor implied at all, if she's ever contrary, I'm going to listen. Because she is so much, so so much the supporter. Okay, if you get the point, I'm not saying that well. Off we go. After we came to Calcutta, he devoted his whole time to reading on the subject, having obtained the best authors on both sides. After having examined and re-examined the subject in every way possible, and comparing the sentiments of both Baptists and pedo-Baptists with the Scriptures, he was compelled from a conviction of the truth to embrace those of the former. I confine my attention almost entirely to the Scriptures, comparing the Old with the New Testament, and tried to find something in favor, to favor infant baptism, but was convinced it had no foundation there. I examined the covenant of circumcision and could see no reason that baptism should be administered to children because circumcision was. Thus, my dear parents and sisters, we are both confirmed Baptists, not because we wish to be, but because truth compelled us to be. A renunciation of our former sentiments has caused us more pain than anything which ever happened to us through our lives. She had no idea what was coming. But what a painful experience it was. She writes to her sister, Can you, my dear Nancy, still love me? Still desire to hear from me when I tell you I've become a Baptist? (laughs) Are we that bad? (laughs) You may perhaps think this change very sudden 
as I have said nothing of it before. But my dear girl, this alteration hath not been the work of an hour, a day, or a month. The subject has been maturely, candidly, and I hope prayerfully examined for months. I felt afraid he would become a Baptist. And frequently urged the unhappy consequences if he should. But he said his duty compelled him to satisfy his own mind and embrace those sentiments which appeared most concordant with the Scripture. Thus, my dear Nancy, we are confirmed Baptists. Not because we wish to be, but because truth compelled us to be. These things, my dear Nancy, have caused us to weep and pour out our hearts in prayer to Him whose directions we so much wish and need. We feel that we are alone in the world with no real friend but each other. No one on whom we can depend but God. That's something. Have you ever been put in a position to have to say, let God be true and every man a liar? Not an easy place to be. But God can be trusted. Better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. We don't have to fear what man can do unto us. If we had time, we could talk about the amazing story of their friend Luther Rice, who was on the other boat, you remember? So that was one of their worries, among others. What would he think when he heard about their, their determination to become Baptists? And they were soon baptized there in Calcutta by a, a man named Ward, a pastor, preacher Ward. What would Luther Rice think? Well, Luther Rice came to the same conviction on the same trip. And so Luther Rice, they decided together that someone had to go home and they had to bring this message back to their supporters and they had to let the Congregationalists know what their decision was and then somebody's going to have to reach out to the Baptists and raise money. There was no organization in the States at that time, an organized institution that was established for the purpose of supporting foreign missions among the Baptists. It didn't exist at that time. So Luther Rice goes home to make that happen. He never went back to the mission field. And it's interesting that there was a bit of a rub between him and Mr. Judson because of that. And, and, and to me that's interesting only because <clears throat> I know what it's like to deal with people. And we all have our moments, don't we? We all have our struggles. The Bible tells us of a Paul and and, and Barnabas, who had a contention between them, was so sharp they parted ways. They were both good men. They were both filled with the Spirit of God. They were both used of God. And so I think they patched that up. As a matter of fact, I know they did. But Luther Rice never went back. And he stayed in the States, and he never got married. He spent the rest of his life riding on horseback thousands of miles a year raising money for missions. Isn't that amazing? They get to Calcutta and they begin to, um, to deal with an organization, we could say the oppressive policies, if you will, of the East India Company. And I'm going to cut this short and just tell you, you should read about it, a little bit about it in the article. Uh, but they're in Calcutta, which is in India. Um, it's kind of across the Bay of Bengal. On the other side is... Burma, that's where they're supposed to be headed. And the East India Company is a trade company out of Great, out of Great Britain. And uh, they, they uh, what's the word? <laughs> they had business, trade business there in that part of the world. 
And uh, they were concerned about missions. They believed that missions would cause the Hindus uh, in that part of the world to rebel and it would cost them money. And so they didn't want any Christian missionaries over there messing things up. So they stepped in and demanded that the Judsons go home. And it's a long, amazing story of how they tried to duck and dodge and avoid uh, going back to uh, the States. They hid out for a little while in a little place called the Isle of France which is right off the coast of Madagascar, which, as you know, is an island off the coast of Africa. And um, make that short story long, they finally were able to, in a sense, sneak onto a boat without official permission called the Georgiana. Judson referred to it as that crazy old vessel, the Georgiana. And they set sail for Burma. You got to keep in mind that so far the mission experience had cost them all their friends, all their financial support. They had already begun to see death uh, afflict their co-laborers. Mrs. Newell, I think, was the first. Her good friend who came over with them from the States died early on. So they board this ship and they, they're going to cross the Bay of Bengal and go to Rangoon. And they're on this rickety old ship and it's a very tempestuous time. She goes onto the ship, she being Mrs. Judson, Ann Judson, is taken onto the boat. She's very sick. She's so sick they send a nurse with her. The nurse drops dead almost right away. So there they are with no one to help. There's... There's Adoniram Judson carrying for Anne, and they're trying to make their way across this, uh, this tempestuous bay. Uh, they, an infant is born, uh, is stillborn. They have a child stillborn during that horrible trip. She almost dies, and Judson believed that she would die. But they reached a little strip of islands, and uh, the Adaman, Andaman Islands, I believe is how you say that, and they reached those islands. When they passed between them, they reached calm seas. And Judson believed that she would have died had they not reached that place when they reached it. So they make it to Rangoon. And this had been their hopes and dreams now for, if I remember correctly, something like two years has already passed. I, I, that's It's close to that. And here is Adoniram Judson's description of their new home. All right? Now remember, they've already lost a child. They've already lost colleagues. They've lost support. You know, I'm a nerve-wracked person. I'm so nervous I could thread a sewing machine and it running. If something bothers me, I have to get on the cell phone and I have to get it packed up. I have to get it resolved or I can't sleep. I can't imagine having to address issues the way they had to address issues. I don't know how they stood it. Writing a letter, and it would take months for the letter to get there and months for a response to come back, having no idea what's going on now back in the States with Luther Rice, having no idea how their family's going to feel about it, having no idea. It's very difficult, very difficult on the best day. And here is their experience when they reach Rangoon. Judson said this, We had never before seen a place where European influence had not contributed to smooth and soften the rough features of uncultivated nature. The prospect of Rangoon as we approached was quite disheartening. I went on shore just at night 
to take a view of the place and the mission house. But so dark and cheerless and unpromising did all things appear that the evening of that day after my return to the ship we had marked as the most gloomy and distressing that we ever passed. Instead of rejoicing as we ought to have done and having found a heathen land from which we were not immediately driven away, so were our weaknesses that we felt we had no portion left here below and found consolation only in looking beyond our pilgrimage, which we tried to flatter ourselves would be short, to that peaceful region where the wicked cease from troubling the weary. Troubling and the weary are at rest. But if ever we commended ourselves sincerely and without reserve to the disposal of our Heavenly Father, it was on this evening. And after some recollection and prayer, we experienced something of the presence of Him who cleaveth closer than a brother. Something of that peace which our Savior bequeathed to His followers. A legacy which we know from this experience endures when the fleeting pleasures and unsubstantial riches of the world are passed away. The next day, Mrs. Judson was carried into town, being unable to walk. And we found a home at the mission house. Though Mr. Carey was absent at Ava. Anne said we felt very gloomy and dejected the first night we arrived, in view of our prospects. But we were enabled to lean on God and feel that He was able to support us under the most discouraging circumstances. And that's how they began their mission work. And a lifelong struggle with 108 degree temperatures and, and cholera and dysentery and, and, and fevers and death of colleague after colleague. What an experience they had. A glimpse into Judson's mind and heart is found. Is, it, Francis Wayland found, he's a favorite of your pastor's, Fran, as a matter of fact, his picture's in, in, in his study. Francis Whalen uh, found a book that Adoniram Judson used in translating the Scriptures. And inside that book, he found these words written by Judson's hand. In joy or sorrow, health or pain, our course beyondward still, we sow on Burma's barren plain, we reap on Zion's hill. Isn't that a blessing? F. H. or, or F. Uh, w. Borum describes their first home as a rude hut built upon a swamp outside the city wall. Wild beasts prowled around it. Nearby to the left was the pit into which the awful of the, uh, the awful of the city was poured as waste. Nearby to the right was the place where the bodies of the dead were buried. The young couple were sickened and disgusted by every sight and smell. September the 1815, a little boy was born to the Judson family. So now they have their, their second child born and, and he is born alive. And they name him Roger Williams in honor of the Apostle of Religious Liberty in America. He lived for eight months and then he died they sowed his little body beneath the benighted soil of Burma. And said this, We do not feel a disposition to murmur or inquire of our sovereign why he has done this. We wish rather to sit down submissively under the rod and bear the smart till the end for which the affliction was sent should be accomplished. 
our hearts were bound up in this child and we felt he was our earthly all. Anne and Adoniram labored and suffered like that for seven years before their first convert. Seven years. Think of that. Maybe they didn't go to the right seminar, maybe. I don't know. Maybe they didn't have the right approach. Seven years. Anne became really ill after about eight years into their mission. And it was so bad that she had to go back to the States to survive. And so she leaves without Adoniram. She leaves without her family. And, and at this point, they had no children. She leaves in August of 1821 and returns December of 1823. That's two years and four months later. Two years and four months later. When she returns to Judson, he had not heard from her in ten months. One of the amazing things is how she was used of the Lord in the States to encourage and to stir hearts for missions. We always talk about the men. All these preachers. But with all these preachers, are some amazing women. In all these cemeteries where these remembered preachers are buried are some women buried beside them and some church members buried behind them. Whalen said about her, he said, I do not remember ever to have met a more remarkable woman to great clearness of intellect, large powers of comprehension, an intuitive female sagacity, ripened by the constant necessity of independent action. She added that heroic disinterestedness, which naturally loses all consciousness of self in the prosecution of a great object. That's a fancy way of saying she never made things about her. She was disinterested in self. Did it for others. In 1823, they relocated to Ava up the Irrawaddy River from Rangoon. And they had some trouble there. The British began to have issues with the, the Burmese government. And um, they bombarded the bay or, or the, the harbor there in Rangoon. If that's the right terminology. They bombarded Rangoon. And so Westerners were viewed as spies. So even though the Judsons were from America and not England, they're still Westerners. They're still very, uh, they were very suspicious of all Westerners. So eventually Judson is taken from his home. They're having dinner there in the mission house. And the authorities come in and they place some kind of a, of a, of a, tie on his arms and snatch him up in some kind of a strange uh, type of a torture that they would use to tie up a prisoner and they could use it to cut the wind off of the victim and so they drag him from his home with that type of treatment and horrible 
uh, abusive behavior and children are, are crying and, and villagers are running from their homes to see what's happening to this great teacher. And, and of course, Anne is, is begging for some mercy. And they take him off to prison. This begins one of the darkest eras of the Judson experience. They put him in a little crowded prison room. Too vile for animals to live in. When Anne found him the first time, and you know, it's a difficult scene to describe because they're they're living in filth, a little room maybe the size of this platform, I imagine in my mind, and there's people piled in there like animals. So I don't need to describe the filth. I don't need to describe to you the the immodesty and the the the, the shock to the to the mind's eye in that place. And so when Anne goes to visit him the first time, she said, Mr. Judson crawled to the door of the prison. He was shackled in a line with numerous other men, numerous, several shackles down his legs to hold them close together. And at the end of their feet was a, if I, if I understand this correctly, some kind of a, of a fasten, a loop of some kind. And they run a bamboo pole through there and they would, He'd be just stuck with these other reprehensible criminals. Anne would go and visit him as often as she could get there, bribing prison guards, doing whatever she could do to try to get to see Mr. Judson often in the middle of the night. Judson believed that he would certainly have died had it not been for Anne, his ministering angel. She lobbied incessantly for his release and gave herself tirelessly to the alleviation of his misery. He was incarcerated for approximately a year and a half. He said this, I dare not tell you half the horrors I've seen and felt. They haunt me. When I'm ill or sad, even now, and the simplest relation of them would do no good to either of our dreams. While he was in prison, Anne didn't show up for weeks. I think 21 days or something like that. She finally returned. She had their new baby, Maria, in her arms. The scenes of those visits with Anne holding Maria and Adoniram crawling in shackles across a filthy prison floor must have been unbearable. He wrote a long poem about his little Maria. I selected just a few stanzas. He said, Why ope thy little eyes? What would my darling see? Thy sorrowing mother's bending form, thy father's agony. Wouldst view this drear abode where fettered felons lie, and wonder that thy father here should as a felon sigh? Wouldst mark the dreadful sights which stoutest hearts appall, the stocks, the cord, the fatal sword, the torturing iron mall. A year into this incarceration, the prisoners were relocated. They marched them across scorching tropical sands. They were basically crippled from the torture, hardly hobble along. Their feet, of course, were bloody from, from all sorts of torments and the mosquitoes tortured them. Eventually, and, and, and by the way, while they're making that trek, Anne's following along with Maria in her arms. Scared to death if he gets away, she might not find him and never see him again. Little Maria contracts smallpox. 
and I guess due to the stress and sicknesses of her own, was unable to nurse the infant. So in a strange kind of a mercy, they would release Mr. Judson out of his prison cell in the middle of the night and he would go through the village crying for somebody, some villager. And I'm not being unkind to those heathen people in that day, but you can only imagine the filth crying for someone to nurse their baby. Judson is eventually released from prison. And the scene of his return to home is one of the great scenes of Christian history. And he goes back to the home. He finds there a filthy Burmese woman, half-dressed, kind of squatting beside a smoldering fire, holding a baby that is so filthy that Judson would have never imagined it was Maria. And there is Anne laying across the bed and she is awakened by the warm tears of Mr. Judson landing on her face. Before Judson had been there in Burma 14 years, he buried Anne and all of his children. He wrote to his family and said, Weep with me, my dear sister and parents, for my beloved wife is no more. His little daughter Marie had died six months later. And he said, I am alone in the wide world. My own dear family I've buried, one in Rangoon, two in Amherst. What remains for me but to hold myself in readiness to follow the dear departed to that blessed world where my best friends, my kindred dwell, where God my Savior reigns. Now, Adoniram Judson was a great man, but he was a man. And this affliction broke him in half. On the second anniversary, you can, all, you can see him sitting in the jungle beside those graves. On the second anniversary of his wife's death, he wrote to his sister and said, You see from the date that it is the second anniversary of the triumph of death over all my hopes of earthly bliss. I have this day moved into a small cottage which I have built in the woods away from the haunts of men. My tears flow over the forsaken grave of my love and over the loathsome sepulcher of my own heart. Judson began to read the Catholic mystics. His thoughts became dark and self-loathing and he struggled terribly with paralyzing self-mortification and 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 um his the the these the analysis and the all of that agonizing reminiscences tortured him on the third anniversary of Anne's death Judson wrote God is to me the great unknown I believe in him but I find him not and don't don't be too hard on him. Read Job. It's almost impossible to hear this story without hating yourself, isn't it? To think that we are so emotionally fragile 
the things that we struggle with, the things that we fuss over in a church is insane when we look at it against the backdrop of this type of a life. In 1829, Judson gets a letter from home and he, and he, he, he hears in the letter, receives the news in the letter that, um, his father, that his brother rather had died. But he finds out in the letter, he receives the information as well, that his brother had gotten saved before he died. And that, in, a, in, in, in an unsuspecting way, that news pulled back the curtains of his life and allowed some light to come in. And he began to recover. And he finished the translation of the Scripture into the Burmese language. Continued to preach and converts continued to be saved. Eight years later, he marries again. His second wife is the missionary widow, Sarah Boardman. Sarah and Adoniram had eight children. Only three of them lived. Now, just because the story's in fast forward now, don't doubt that those moments were equally excruciating. She became sick. And they took a trip to America to try to get her some help. And as they rounded the coast of Africa in 1845, she died. They dropped anchor and buried her on the island of St. Helena and sailed on. This was the time of Judson's famous trip back to the States. be a great subject for another article and something else to, to consider because of the way he influenced and helped uh, so many people in the States to have a heart for missions. While he's there, he meets a woman that he wants to commission to write the biography of his second wife, Sarah Boardman. He meets a woman named Emily Chubbuck. And uh, Emily Chubbuck has a pen name, Fanny Forrester. We've been to her grave. And she was an exceptional lady. She was really moved by missions and read the mission magazines and the reports that would come from, the, from Burma. And she had such a desire to be a part of something like that. Well, to make a long story short, they fell in love and he marries her. She was 29. He was 57. Praise the Lord. Amen. I think that's an amusing thing to see that. Um, or let me say, and music was not the right way to put that. It's an interesting thing to me to see that these people had the same desires and needs and wants and passions that we have. I read about these old preachers and I think, in my mind, I picture them as being stern and rigid and, and not caring about the things that we care about. But Judson's story shows us that he needed a companion. He needed a wife. He loved his wives. He died inside for his children. But he was nonetheless faithful. He got criticized for that. They criticized him for marrying a woman that was so worldly in their estimation. And she was criticized by her peers for leaving a great literary life and becoming a missionary's wife. And uh, so that tells us something, that criticism is no new thing. You try to do something for the Lord, you always get criticized. So what of all this suffering? Great missionary died at sea, bound for the Isle of France, April the 12th, 1850. His wife, Emily, was writing to her sister and said, As I have loved you, 
so ought ye to have... Let me, let me make sure I read that correctly. His wife Emily, writing to his sister, quoted him saying, As I have loved you, so ought ye to have loved one another. That was a precept that was continually in his mind. He would often murmur this in his sickness. As I have loved you, to his death, he was motivated by the love of Christ. When he died, up until his death, his goal was to see a hundred converts. A church established and a hundred converts before he died. When he died, there were over 7,000 converts. 63 churches. The Bible translated into the Burmese language in an English Burmese dictionary completed. What an amazing story. Let's finish in 2 Thessalonians 3. talked this long we haven't been going an hour so it's not too bad for such a great story and he talked this long you don't really have time to go any further and to be frank with you I don't know that I could sort through the depth of this material and make proper application I don't know that I'm the man to do that I don't even think I'm worthy of talking about this man The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do the things which we command you, and the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. I believe that what we're seeing here is that if we would do what we're commanded, as we see in verse 4, if we would do and continue to do, will do the things that we're commanded, then we can trust that God would direct us into His love. When we talk about God directing us into His love and living within the love of God, um, keep yourselves in the love of God, what we're simply saying is we're going to endure as He endured or anything even close. You have to live within the effect, the warmth of of God's love. You can't be out there all the time living in the drag of materialism, things and stuff and flesh and lust and expect to maintain the outlook that He maintained. You have to be directed into the love of God. So if you're weary, you need the love of God. You need to just wallow in it. You need to, you need to bask in it. You need to feel it. You've got to believe that you can Feel it. That you can be re-strengthened. That you can be encouraged when you're discouraged. That the birds can sing again. 
that the sky can be blue again in your life. Or that God can enable you to bear what He's requiring you to bear for His glory and that His love will convince you through it that it's worth it. But you cannot do it disconnected from the effect of His love. That's all I know to say. Let's pray together.